1 to 12. It's a very familiar story. You'd be well aware of the story of the, the wise man or the man who came from the east to uh, see Jesus. Matthew chapter uh, 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi or Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born or who has been born King of the Jews? I want you to notice this. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We saw his star. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where Christ, were the Christ or the Messiah, was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people, Israel. He's quoting Micah 5 and 2. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, in the same um, gospel, can we turn to uh, chapter 21, please? Uh, Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to read from verse 6. Matthew chapter 21. Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their coats on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground or on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, I want you to Focus on this, Hosanna, which means save to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes 
in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 26, Matthew's quoting. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Who is this? And we know God will bless to us the reading of his precious word. Well, I wonder how many wise men there were. Some people seem to think that maybe there were three because of the three gifts, but we don't really know. There may have been at least more than two anyway because it says that there were wise men. It just say there, were, there was one wise man. So there may have been more than three, but at least there were wise men who came from the east. Now, what I'm trying to say here this morning is I want you to Go with me on a little journey this morning because I'd like to talk to you about the, the star that Matthew records for us in his gospel, at least the star that he mentions in the birth story of uh, Jesus. Uh, the star is significant because it speaks to us of many different things with, with respect to Jesus, but there's a few of these things that I would like to share with you this morning. I know this is a little bit post-Christmas, and it's not really a Christmas message, but in a sense, we want to focus upon the star associated with the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the road to the Messiah. Uh, You'll notice that the wise men came from the east. Where did they come from? They came most likely from Persia, and they traveled from the east to Jerusalem, or at least eventually to Bethlehem, where they found the Messiah, they found the Savior. So this is the road that they traveled. The road to come face to face with this little infant who was born in Bethlehem but who was none less than the one who had been promised and predicted who would come. So with this star, the first thing I want to share with you is that the star speaks about the one who had been promised. It's a star that's associated with prophecy, and it's a star that's associated with promise. This star tells us something about the prophetic promise that God had given about the one who was to come who would deliver Israel, who would save Israel. Now, you'll notice that the the wise men, they said that we have seen his star in the east. So back in Persia, Babylon, This star that they had observed in their study of the skies was very personal because it's called his star. So it's particular and it's significant because it points to uh, a person. It's got a personal association with it. It's the star of the Messiah. And first of all, they they tell us that we have seen his star rise in the east. 
And so the star, first of all, rose, and then it moved, and then it stopped, and it remained over the house where the young child Jesus was. Uh, Jesus may well have been not just a newborn baby here. He may well have been much older than that, somewhere between one and two years, possibly. But the issue is that the star has personal significance and association with the identity of Jesus. Not only was this star a star of prophecy and promise, because God had promised that the Messiah would come, but this is a star that speaks of the presence of God. I want you to notice that the one whose star this is, who's associated with this star, is none less than the very presence of God in human form. In other words, Jesus is, as Isaiah tells us, Emmanuel, God with us. So here's the personal presence of God in the world. And so the star announces to us the promise and the fulfillment of God with us in Jesus Christ. Now that's really significant for us today because for God to step out of his glory, to step out of heaven, to step off his throne and come to us in Jesus and be born in a, in a stable and grow up in Nazareth is significant because God has associated himself with the human race by becoming human himself. The star also speaks of the mission or the purpose of the Messiah. It just doesn't tell us something about the prophecy and the promise fulfilled. It speaks not only of the presence of God, but it also speaks about the purposes of God. There is certainly a purpose associated with the description of this star in Matthew's gospel. And I want to unpack that a little bit further uh, when we have a look at the, the prophecy that Matthew speaks of in Micah 5 and 2. In the Old Testament, Matthew quotes from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in relation to Bethlehem and the purpose of the Messiah. So what, who were the wise men? What was their role? What was their purpose? Well, I think they, they were uh, certainly astronomers. They, they watched the night skies. They watched the stars. They knew the movements of the stars and the planets. They were also astrologers. In other words, astrology and astronomy in Persia was linked together. They watched for the movement of the constellations where the stars were. For them, this was significant to herald major events, the births of kings, the births of nations, and so on and so forth, the destiny of nations. So this kind of astrology thing was wrapped up with the stars. Now, 
It also happens in our contemporary 21st century in Australia. A lot of people are into astrology, and they look at the stars and try to predict the future and so forth. I want to say something here at the beginning, and I want to make it clear that the star was a revelation of God's purposes, but it didn't come through the study of astrology that these wise men in Persia, Babylon, engaged in. And I want to encourage you as, as Christians not, not to get involved with astrological or astrology or the stargazers and predictors of events and purposes in your life and the life of others. God says that we're, we're not to look there. We are to look to him for our hope and our destiny, not in the astrology of the occult or the black arts or the practices that went along with the Persians and happened in our day where occult practices use the stars and astrology to try and give insight into people's lives and situations. This star was associated with a revelation of God. And I want to try and show you how the wise men came to that conclusion as we move along in our sermon this morning. So in other words, uh, church, don't be going to the place where you look in a crystal ball and you cross somebody's palm of silver and they tell you your fortune. God says, don't do that. He says, look to me. Our fortunes are written in heaven. Our fortunes are in Christ. God, has, God knows my life from the beginning to the end. My destiny is in him, not in anything else, not in astrology. The question needs to be asked. When the wise men said, we saw his star rise in the east, how did they know that it was his star? How did they know that it was the star that was associated with the Messiah, with, with the birth of Jesus? There were many kings born in Judah. Why was it this particular birth and why was it this particular king, Jesus, born king of the Jews, why did the wise man associate this star with him and with no one else? Why did they make that journey from Babylon or Persia all the way, which took them months and months and months of travel to get to the place where Jesus was and there actually worship him. And the word for worship here is, is the word to pay homage that you would do to God. So they actually worshiped Jesus as they would God. We need to ask ourselves these questions. How did they know? Was there something in the tradition of Persia or Babylon that these wise men had access to that would have alerted them to the truth and the meaning of the star that rose in the east that was associated with the Messiah Jesus. That's what I want to try and, and lay a little bit of groundwork this morning so that we can maybe see where the wise men got their information from, how they interpreted this star in particular. Now, if you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to go on a little bit of a trio 
into the Old Testament. So this is the road to the Messiah. And I wonder if you will turn with me to the book of Numbers. You know, in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We'll turn to Numbers chapter 22. If you could swing over with me uh, to Numbers chapter 22 this morning. We're going to have a look at a particular prophecy here given to the, the children of Israel. In the book of Numbers, chapter 22, verse 4, we read this. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And then notice, so Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pithor, near the river, in his native land. And Balak said, a people has come up out of Egypt. I want you to notice, please, that in this particular prophecy, here's the background. You have Balak, who is the king of Moab. And he sees this vast horde of people going through the Arabian desert. The children of Israel, after they had left Egypt, a whole multitude of people after the exodus were passing through the Arabian desert area on their way to the promised land. And here's the king of Midian. You remember Moses spent some time with Jethro, who was priest of Midian. So Moses is now leading this, this vast horde of Israelites who have left Egypt back to the, into the promised land. And the king of Midian watches this, and he says, this people are going to overrun us. So he sends for a man called Balaam, son of Beor, at a place called Pithor. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Try saying that in a hurry. But anyway, Balaam comes from Pithor. Where was Pethor? Pethor was on the river Euphrates, centered or located in Babylon, Persia, the place where the wise men came from to visit Jesus, the Messiah in Bethlehem. That's important. Now, what did Balaam, what was Balaam requested or commissioned to do? Well, Balak says to Balaam, Balaam, you're a prophet. I want you to stand and I want you to curse Israel. Curse them. You're a prophetic priest. You're a prophetic man. Curse this nation for me. And I'll give you whatever you want. I'll pay you to do it. And of course, Balaam, ever the opportunist for a good fee decides to make a journey to see where Israel are encamped. And on his way, God intercepts him. Can you still hear me? Is my voice still clear? That's okay. I, I need to get out of the bus for a while just to walk around. <laughs> so Balaam is on his way to curse Israel. And God intercepts Balaam and tells him, 
not to do this. You're not to curse Israel. What does Balaam do? This phase continues. And God does a miracle here. I, 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 I'm amazed at this particular miracle. Balaam is riding on his donkey. And what does the donkey do? It turns around often he's whipped it a few times. And it speaks to him. Dumb donkey speaks to a dumb prophet who is going to do something dumb. And God tells him not to do it. And he has to get his attention by a donkey speaking with a man's voice. Now see the equivalent of sitting at home one night at the fire and your dog sitting at your feet turning around and saying to you, well, what sort of day did you have? <laughs> Wouldn't that get your attention? You get my attention anyway. That's the equivalent. So God uses extraordinary means sometimes to get people's attention. And in this particular case, Balaam is stopped by the one. And he goes to the, the, the camp of Israel and he looks at the vast array of, of Israelites. And this is the prophecy that he gives over Israel. Will you turn with me please to Numbers chapter 24 uh, verse 17. This is important for us to get a hold of this. Numbers 24 verse 17. Here's what Balaam says. I see him. Notice the singular. I see him but not now. In other words, there's something present and there's something future associated with this prophecy. I behold him, but not near. He's talking about the present and the future. Now notice this. A star will come out of Jacob. The star out of Jacob. Jacob is the name for Israel. Jacob was the father of Israel, the nation. Just as Esau was the father of the nation of Edom. A scepter will rise out of Israel, Jacob Israel, a star and a scepter. He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. The star and the scepter are associated with Jacob and Israel. I want you to get that for a start. The star here is, is not obviously a literal star. It's symbolic of a person. The scepter is not so much a literal scepter, but it's symbolic of a ruler. That's important. Because the one that Balaam prophesied, who came from Babylon, from the town of Pithor, where the wise man came from, he prophesies about one who is associated with the star and the scepter. One who would be associated with the symbolism of the star and who would be a ruler in Israel. Now I want you to go a little bit back with me to the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 49. Let's move back to Genesis 49. If we know that the star and the scepter will come out of Jacob Israel. A ruler is, a, is, a, is about to come who's associated with the symbol of the star. Let's look at Genesis 49 and we'll have a look at verse 10. 
Now, this is Jacob who's blessing his, blessing his sons. Jacob had, uh, of course, the, the, the sons of, of, that became the nation of Israel. And, of course, here's the 12 tribes. And we're looking here in verse 10 at Judah. Verse 9 gives us the connection. You are a land's cub, O Judah. Your return from the prey, my son, like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. Now, here's, here's the point. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So when Jacob is blessing Judah as he's dying, one of the sons of Jacob, the prophecy is that from the tribe of Judah will come a scepter, a ruler, one who will be of royal and kingly dignity. And of course, Balaam in Numbers 24, verse 17, says exactly that same thing, that the one who he sees, but who is yet to come, who is near but far off, will be associated with royalty and kingly dignity. He will be a Messiah. He will be a king. Now that's interesting because that tradition uh, finds its way into Babylon and finds its way into the tradition that the wise men were associated with in the East. Now you say, well, uh, David, is there anything else that can help us with, with this kind of thinking? Well, there is actually. This time we need to go to the book of Daniel. So if you switch over to the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, verse 7. Daniel chapter 4, verse 7. When the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Notice this, the enchanters, the magicians, the astrologers, those who studied the stars, couldn't interpret the dream for the king. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God. The spirit of the holy gods is in him. Now, I want you to notice this is the king's description, but here's what actually happened. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had this dream. Had this dream that was given to him by God in order to test the ability on the part of his wise men, the astrologers. He gets them all together. And rather than just telling them the dream, he says to them, you tell me what I dreamt about, and then give me the interpretation. So the astrologers and the wise men were in a bit of a quandary. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't tell the king his dream, and they couldn't tell him the dream and also the interpretation to go with it. What does the king do? The king says, well, if you can't tell me, I'll put you all to death. So they're all with a death sentence. There's an execution sentence over all of them. Word gets to Daniel, because Daniel is associated with the wise men. 
But rather than look to astrology and to the stars and to all of that and to all of the occult and black arts that the Persians practiced to find out the meaning of the dream that they didn't know, Daniel says, give me time. And he goes and he prays to the Lord of heaven. The Lord who reveals the secrets of hearts and who reveals the hidden things. And Daniel prays, and God gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation. So what Daniel gets from God is by revelation, it's not by astrology. And then he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, O king, live forever. He says, this is your dream. And this is the interpretation. And of course, the king is impressed and knows that Daniel is certainly a servant of the Most High God. And so in, in the, the history and in the tradition of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar also encounters the truth of Revelation. But what does Daniel do? Daniel ministers in Babylon for at least 70 years. And in the time of uh, Darius, to the end of the, the reign of Darius, son of Xerxes, in Daniel chapter 9, we read these words. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, or 24 for the connection. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression and to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now notice this in verse 25. This is what Daniel says. No one understand this, that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. Notice this. The anointed one, the ruler, comes. The star and the scepter, the scepter will not depart from Judah, Genesis 49 and 10. The star and the scepter of Numbers 24, verse 17. Daniel says again to the Babylonian wise men and to the tradition as he gives this prophecy that there is one who is called the anointed, who's called the Messiah. When he comes, he'll be known as the ruler. And then he says something really significant. He says, 70 weeks are determined upon your people. And what Daniel means by that is this, that each week is a period of seven years in Daniel's prophetic calendar. And then he says that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens determined upon Daniel's people, that is the Jews. So seven sevens. And then we have this period of 62 sevens, which is a total of 483 years. It's exact. What Daniel says is, is that when this decree is, is given to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, 
be a period of about 483 years until the anointed ruler comes. Speaking of Jesus, what happened in Jerusalem? Why did it need to be rebuilt? Well, history tells us that in 586-87 BC, before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, besieged the city. And the siege lasted approximately nearly two years until finally the walls and the city were breached and the Babylonian army entered the gates of Jerusalem, slew many of the population, carried many away prisoner, and destroyed the city and the temple. The temple that Solomon had built after the reign of David. Daniel was one of these young men that was carried away from that siege and invasion of Jerusalem when the city fell. Daniel was one of the young men that was carried to Babylon. And Daniel, as you read the story, became known as the wise man of Babylon. Not because of his astrology, but because of his relationship with the true and the living God. But what Daniel does here in chapter 9 is that he infuses into the tradition of Persia, Babylon, the truth of the anointed ruler, the Messiah who would come, the one who was associated with the star and the scepter. Now, what decree are we talking about here? Well, you know, the Bible is a wonderful book because the decree that Daniel refers to here is most likely the decree of Cyrus, Persian king. When was that decree given? It was given in approximately 438 to to 37 BC. So 70 years later, at the end of, of Daniel's ministry, this decree by Cyrus, the Persian king, was given to go back and rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Now, who tells us about that in the Bible? Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet lived 150 years before Cyrus the king, the Persian king, who gave the decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. I want you to turn with me now just for a moment to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to have a look at Isaiah 44, and we'll look at verse 28. It's really significant because this links together the whole significance of the star, and I want to bring that to you in a moment. Isaiah chapter 44, and we'll look here at verse 28. This is God speaking about Cyrus. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the peop- and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So church, listen to this. Isaiah is saying this 150 years before this man is born. Now in, in chapter 45 
of the same book, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. Cyrus is called the Lord's anointed in this case because God was going to particularly use this king for a significant purpose. Whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor and to open doors. God was going to use Cyrus to open a door to the captives that were taken from Jerusalem when the city fell God was going to open a door through Sarah so that they could go back and rebuild the temple. And please down to verse 13. I will raise up Sarah in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. Notice, he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, God will move Sarah's heart Cyrus will have an encounter with the true and living God to give this decree for the city to be rebuilt. And when Cyrus gave that decree in 538 BC, from that period, 483 years elapsed and the anointed ruler was born or came, Jesus of Nazareth. And in Matthew chapter 2, His star appears in the east. And the wise men of Babylon, the Persian wise men, see this star, see this light in the heavens. And what do they do? They don't go to astrology. They go back to the prophecy of Balaam. They go back to the prophecy of Daniel because it's in their tradition because Balaam came from Pathor and Babylon and Daniel was in Babylon and Daniel spoke for God by divine revelation and gave God's truth to the Babylonian people and it was embedded in their tradition. And when they see this star, they know the significance of the truth of God that was delivered to them many, many years back. So yes, although they were astrologers, and yes, although they studied the signs of the stars and tried to predict the future, they didn't get their truth or their information from astrology. They got it by divine revelation from God. And I want to tell you that the star speaks of all the promises of God and all the hope of God and all the goodness of God now fulfilled in a person called the anointed ruler, the one who is called the star and the scepter, the one who came from the tribe of Judah, the one who was born in Bethlehem, the town of David, who is called Messiah Jesus, the Savior of Israel and the Savior of the world. The question is, why worship this king, this Jewish king, rather than any other king? Why not go and worship Herod when he was born? Or Herod Antipas or any of the others? It's because the significance of the timing of the star in the east heralded forth that the predictions that were given into the Babylonian tradition and history and liturgy were now fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And the star that we see in the east guided the wise men so that they may encounter Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something here. That Matthew speaks about 
joy and worship associated with finding Christ. You see, none of us would ever find Jesus if it weren't for the goodness of God to have revealed him to us and to our hearts. And the journey from the east, the road to the Messiah, to find him in Bethlehem as a little baby, was because God revealed his heart long, long ago to the people of Babylon and Persia that one would be born called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now I'm going to ask you a question. You don't need to answer it, but something to think about. Was the star a literal star in the heavens? Was it a star that we look at at night when we go out and we look and see the, the stars, the beautiful stars? Well, some people think it was. Some people think that it was actually the, the alignment of two planets, Saturn and Jupiter, that formed a bright light in the sky. There's a man by the name of Dr. David Hughes that, that argues that kind of point, that, that God used the natural heavens as a sign or a symbol for the birth of the Messiah. And that may well be true. There's another man by the name of Dr. Molnar who says that the star may have been a nova. Uh, what, 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 they, what we mean by a nova is that a, a bright star appears for a moment in the heavens for a period of time and then it disappears. In other words, it's an exploding star in cosmology. That may also be a possibility. But if you notice about this star, it was like no ordinary star because it moved east to west, north to south. It actually traveled and then it stopped. It actually stopped over the particular place where Jesus was. So it didn't act like an ordinary star. It was extraordinary in its behavior. It appears to be different. But it's a star that's associated with the glory of the Messiah King. Now here's what I think, and you don't have to, you don't have to agree with me, but I think that the appearance of the star in the heavens was what the Hebrews called the Shekinah, the glory of the presence of God, the brightness of the presence. You remember in the book of Exodus, when God led the children of Israel, there was a, a cloud by day that traveled over the camp and stopped where it indicated that the Israelites had to encamp for the, the period of time. And by night, when Israel traveled in the desert, there was this kind of bright pillar of fire. It was like a bright light that shone, that directed them and led them through the desert as they traveled by night, cloud by day, fire or brightness by night. And I think this is possibly a supernatural event that God by his mercy and by his grace demonstrated God set his glory in the heavens that the wise men picked up on this brightness, this shining, brilliant light that guided them and led them to where Jesus was. So what I'm saying here is that I think the star may have been a manifestation of the presence and the glory of God 
in such a way that these wise men understood it or interpreted it or saw it like a star, like the brightness. The Greek word that, that Matthew uses for star, at its very foundation or root, it means brilliance or radiance. So this could well be the supernatural hand of God placing his glory over the Messiah, directing men and nations to the birth of King Jesus, the one who had come to be the savior of the world, born king of the Jews. Now, you don't have to accept that. I'm saying it's, it's very possible that God could have also used the, the natural phenomena of the stars or the heavens to make a point. But I think this may have been the glory of God, a kind of manifestation of the Shekinah. That's what the Hebrews called it, the brightness of the glory. So what is the star really saying? Matthew 5 and 2, or Micah 5 and 2, gives us an indication of the mission or the purposes of the Messiah. In Micah, the scripture says, Bethlehem Ephrata, although you be least among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he, that is the Messiah, that is Jesus, come forth for me. The idea is for me or onto me. And, and in Micah's prophecy, what Micah is really saying is that, that Jesus was manifested or the Messiah was born, the anointed ruler, the star and the scepter was associated with him. He came for a mission. He came for a purpose. And that purpose was to set people free, to bring in the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins. So the star tells us something of the fact that he has come. His coming to us is heralded by the star. Now, significantly, I want to link, as we close this, this sermon, Matthew 21, verse 9, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem at the close of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 2, we've looked at his birth, but in Matthew 21, we're looking at the close or the end of his ministry. And as Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem, what do the people do? The people throw down their coats so that he rides upon this donkey. They throw down palm leaves before him. And as he enters the city, he enters the city like a humble king. And they cry out, Blessed is the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. The Hebrew phrase, Hosanna, simply means, save us now, O Lord. Son of David, save us now. The people were crying that they were acknowledging that this one who was associated with the star and the scepter was not only the king, but the savior. And this is what they cried out. Hosanna, benai ha David, baruch adonai. Blessed are you, son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord. They cry out unto Jesus. And Jesus 
enters the city in all the glory of the God who became human, who was veiled in the humble guise as a carpenter who enters the city upon a donkey, but was no less than the one who held the glory of God in his very hand. He's the star and the scepter, and he's entering the city of Jerusalem to die upon a cross. Who for? <coughs> what is the star? When I think of Christmas, and I think of this time of the new year, the star tells me Jesus is the one who comes. He's the one who comes to us. He's the one who comes to you. He didn't come in all the glory as a king and all the majesty and the brightness of his day and his God. He came as a humble man, God in human form. And he came to Jerusalem to accomplish the greatest mission for humanity ever was to die for you and for me that we might be free. That we might have the forgiveness of God. That we might have the hope of God. That we might have the promise of the star glory and a destiny with him, not only in time, but for eternity. Church, I want to encourage you this morning. Jesus is the one who comes. He comes to us today. You say, well, how does he come to us today? He comes to us today by his spirit. And he comes to this congregation. And he comes as the star and the scepter. And he unfolds and he reveals God's heart to us. And the heart of God today is this, that God loves you. And he loves me. And he has sent Messiah Jesus to set us free. To bring us into the liberty of knowing that our sins can be forgiven and that we can walk before God in all the peace and shalom of knowing that we are clear of all the judgment of God and that we have a destiny and glory that the Messiah Jesus has done. Well, what are the wise people? Wise people, wise men, wise women, wise children, Fall down at the feet of the Messiah and they worship him. There's a real joy in the worship. You know, being born again, being seen by the grace of God, simply means that your life in my life becomes an act of worship of God. When I see the glory of the one who came into the world, and I see the glory of the one who died upon that cross for me. It causes me to fall in my hands and my feet. It causes me to fall down and worship and for us, the Savior and God. And my life and your life as Christians, because of the star in this because of the anointed of God, ought to be on a life of worship. You know, all the psychologists and all the psychiatrists they write doctorates and they write theses and they write books on what? How to be happy. How to be happy. That's what everyone wants. How can I live a happy life? The Bible has an answer for that. Have a relationship with the God who made you. Jesus is Fall down in his feet and worship him. Live a life of worship for him. And what does it say? When they saw the young child and they fell down and they worshipped him, they were filled with exceeding great joy. George, I'll tell you this. One of the happiest experiences in my life 
was in a little schoolhouse in Zambia, preaching the gospel. And we preached the gospel every day for a week. And the people walked for miles and miles and miles and walked into the schoolhouse, and they came to hear the word of God. And the Zambians were full of worship. They were full of adoration for Jesus. And I remember listening to the worship and the adoration rising from their hearts, just publicly and overflowing with praise for the goodness of God. My heart was filled with joy, and my heart was filled with love, because God was there. And where Jesus says, when we enter into the presence of Christ, when we're in relationship with Him, where God is, there is real joy and everlasting peace. That's what we need. We need a relationship with Jesus. May God bless you this morning. May this first day of not first day, second day of 2011, the first Sunday of the year, may the star, the ruler of the scepter, be your portion and be your glory. May he be the glory and the lifter of your head. And may you live for the glory of Jesus because he's all together worth it, isn't it? And he's all together worth it. Amen. God bless you. Let's um, come together and we'll, we'll just sing our last hymn together, 222. 222. Yours is the glory, risen, conquering sun. Endless is the victory over death you won. Angels robed in splendor rolled the stone away, capped the folded grave clothes where your body lay. And on this first day of the week, we're going to celebrate because Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. You know, some people say, you Christians are all miserable sometimes by looking in your face. That's, I mean, they didn't say it to this congregation. They said it to another one. But really, we, we ought to be full of the joy of the Lord because our Savior, our King, is alive. He's alive. And that's what we're going to sing about this morning. Let's, let's stand and worship.
Father, we worship you, we give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory this morning. Jesus, we hail you as the star and the scepter, the anointed ruler who has come. We worship you that you are king and lord over our lives, and we gladly fall before you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you this morning. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the deliverance. You have made an end of sin and transgression of the law, and you have brought us into the righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. May the blessing of Almighty God and the glory of God rest upon your people. May the Spirit of God overshadow them, and the name of the anointed ruler be their portion and their shalom, this time forth and forevermore, in the name of Messiah Jesus. Amen.